0: Morning, everyone. We, when we started the series on Matthew, we skipped ahead deliberately because I knew that we would be coming back to the first couple of chapters now, today, and for this month, uh, to look at the early life of Jesus, his birth, of course, and uh, so we're in Matthew chapter one, uh, verses. Well, we did verse 1, but it's 1 to 18, or 2 to 18. Um, One of the purposes, or one of the things that I hope you're picking up on as we work through the book of Matthew, um, and one of the purposes of studying Matthew, one of the purposes of studying all of Scripture together, as we do on Sunday morning, is to see the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and also how every text is, pers- is, is purposeful. Every, every text uh, has an intent behind it. The writer has written it for a reason. And God is using it by his Holy Spirit in our lives very intentionally. So there's no wasted words anywhere in Scripture. And there is great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though you might think that the Old Testament seems like a different kind of book than the New Testament. In fact, it is one story about one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we'll see some of that continuity today, and we'll also see the purpose of this particular text, which may not on its surface appear like a very profound or enlightening text, um, because it really is just a list of names that lead up to Jesus, but we'll see what we find in there. Um, One of the things in terms of the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we've talked about this a number of times in Matthew, is that Matthew's introduction to the Christmas story or to the birth of Christ rests on top of at least three promises and many, many prophecies about w- in the Old Testament of what was to come. And you're going to spend more time on the promises in your life groups, but very quickly, um, you start with the promise to Eve in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, Eve is promised that her offspring will be bruised and will bruise the enemy. Be bruised by an enemy and will bruise an enemy. And that's sort of a vague promise that that God makes to Eve after this conflict with Satan in the garden. And as you move forward in time, God then makes another promise to Abraham uh, in Genesis 22, 17-18, and in God's promises to Abraham, he expands on this promise of this offspring of Eve that is to come, and now it's Abraham's offspring, so now we're through Abraham, and that this offspring is going to, or this descendant is going to, through him, bless all the nations of the world. So we have a new promise and an expansion on that promise. And then, as you go further along, you have a promise to Judah in Genesis 49, 8-12, Whereas he is being blessed by his father, uh, he is told that authority will reside in his family line and the scepter or the ruling and authority will not depart from his family line until the one, excuse me, to whom it belongs will come. So you can see that through the Old Testament, God is making these promises to a certain line of people that will result in offspring in the future. And then uh, the many prophecies, but we'll just... Talk about Isaiah 9, 6-7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And so we have this now prophecy that a son is coming and that we are waiting for this long-anticipated son who's been promised and who's been foretold. And so this son who is going to be born and who is given is going to bear the punishment that sinners deserve so that we don't face judgment and those are other prophecies that deal with that. I'm not going to get into all that because I want to get to our text in Matthew. But I just, I just want you to see that Matthew's writing for a purpose and there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and that continuity is important. And what we see that is through all of the Old Testament and all of the fathers and all of the tribes of Israel and all of the sort of things that have gone on there, and we talked a lot about that in, in weeks past, that if God is going to preserve this royal line It isn't going to be on account of his people's righteousness. It's going to be in spite of his people's sinfulness. So if there's going to be a king, if there's going to be this promised Messiah, if there's going to be this anointed one, he cannot be a king that rules by law or we will all be guilty. He will have to be a king who is a king that rules by grace, who knows suffering and who is sympathetic to the condition of mankind. And so all of the Old Testament is looking forward in anticipation of the arrival of this kind of king. And so now, finally, in Matthew, we have the arrival of this king of grace. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, Matthew's writing with an express intention of introducing to the fact that Jesus is this long-awaited king. He is the Messiah. And so, if he is going to make this argument that Jesus is the king to his Jewish readers who are reading this, he is going to have to establish some kingly credentials for this man, Jesus. But what we want to see today is that while Matthew is establishing these kingly credentials, he is every intention of slipping in some additional information and instruction to the people, which his Jewish audience will not miss at all what Matthew is saying in how he lists this group of people. And we should not miss it either. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at Matthew 1 to 18, this genealogy of Jesus and the arrival of him as a long-anticipated king. Let me just pray before we read God's word. Father God, we thank you that your word is consistent, that it is coherent, that it is continuous from beginning to end, that it is one story, the story of your son and the story of your plan to redeem mankind. And so Father, we thank you that in everything that your scripture teaches us, there isn't a single wasted word, that you intend to convey to us the same message over and over again. The King has come. He's a King of grace and he's for us, not against us. So Father, I pray as we read your word now that your Holy Spirit would be living and active in it and that it would convict each of us of the things that we need to be convicted of and encouraged in the way that we need to be encouraged. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 1, 1 to 18, um, is the, the lineage that leads to Jesus, according to Matthew. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. and Ram the father of Aminadab Now we get into some names we don't know so well. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim and Eleichem the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And we're going to get to that. Well, you'll see it all in the pageant. The pageant's going to spoil the whole story. (laughs) You're going to see the birth of Christ, but we'll get to that in later weeks as we lead up to Christmas, the birth of Christ. But we see here in this text that Matthew divides his generations in such a way on purpose that he highlights three eras of Israel's history listed as three groups of 14 generations. These are theological generations. They're not historical generations. There were other Fathers and other sons in there, but Matthew has highlighted these particular fathers and sons and mothers on purpose to establish these three eras. you have the um, ascending order from Abraham to Jesus focusing on this line of royal succession. So he comes from Abraham, which is the era of promise and covenant. It's the patriarchs and the judges into the second era of David, which is the era of monarchy and is sort of an era of decline and tragedy from David descending down until finally exile and the final era of exile, uh, which is silence and captivity and obscurity and we don't know anything about the names in verses 14 and 15 at all, and then 400 years of silence after the prophet Malachi. And so you have these three sort of grand eras that Matthew is establishing. But looking closely at what Matthew is doing now, opening up his gospel in this way, first and foremost, we don't want to overlook the obvious. Matthew, very clearly, in writing this, has a... a a very top-of-mind purpose of establishing the royal lineage for Jesus. Nobody is going to accept Jesus as Messiah and Davidic king unless he actually descends from King David. And so Matthew traces Jesus' family all the way back to David, but actually all the way back to Abraham, the founder of the entire nation. And as we touched on in this in our, in our, our first sermon, we won't stress it too much. But in terms of pedigree for Jesus, we should also note that, that Luke has a genealogy that diverges from Matthew's genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus' mother Mary is by blood, and it goes in the reverse order in chapter 3 of Luke, descending from Jesus to Abraham. The line of Mary through David's son Nathan, rather than through Solomon, like we have in this um, this genealogy, right? So you pick up on that. This In this genealogy, it said that David had a son, Solomon, who had a son, and it goes down to Joseph. In Mary's genealogy, David also had a son, Nathan, and it goes through that line down to Mary. So both Mary and Joseph are of the family of David through different sons. Matthew's following the inheritance of the throne or the legal lineage of rulership from Judah through David to the Messiah, whereas Luke is following the bloodline through Mary. And this is important. It's important for this little side reason, which again, nobody in Jewish culture who understood their own testament would miss this point. Joseph line can't be the bloodline even though it's the legal kingly line. Because Joseph has Jeconiah in his line. And if you go back and read about Jeconiah because of the evil that he did God cursed Jeconiah's bloodline that none of his blood offspring would sit on the throne Jeremiah 22:30 says thus says the Lord write this down write this man down as childless a man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah and as it turns out Even though Joseph is the husband of Mary, and he stands in the royal inheritance line of kingship from David, he is the blood offspring of Jeconiah, and his offspring is not actually going to sit on the final eternal kingly throne of David, because Joseph is the adopted father of Jesus, not the earthly father of Jesus. Mary is his human mother, but Joseph is not his human father. Because Jesus is beget by the Holy Spirit. So you see that you, here, even in this very small way, Matthew is making a statement that, yes, G- Joseph is in the line of David, so Jesus is, has all authority to claim the throne that I'm claiming he is going to claim, but he's in the bloodline of Mary, also in the line of David, but neatly avoids the bloodline of the man who's been cursed and whose son will never sit on a throne. And so, in all these little ways, this is the first little way that Matthew and Luke together are establishing the kingship of Jesus. This is the king who has come, he's in the line of David. He does not disqualify in any way from any of the promises that have gone before, either promises for the king that are positive about the king, or curses or promises that are negative about the king, like Jeconiah. All of those promises are fulfilled in the same way. Both the positive and the negative promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we see this in the genealogy which we're given we also see that he's a king of grace. And this is the thing that stands out most because as Matthew is writing this genealogy, there's lots of names he could have picked and lots of names he could have deliberately overlooked. But he doesn't overlook these names. He writes them boldly and draws attention to some of them even. And so this is the second purpose, I think, in Matthew writing his genealogy the way he has, is he wants to emphasize the fact that this king who has come is a king of grace. That God is accomplishing his purposes with real people, not with ideal people. And as we look at this list, there's one thing that stands out. It's a royal lineage, yes, it's a pedigree for kingship, but it is a list that is saturated with the need for grace. Let's just first look at the men. There are many, many very questionable men in this list. Abraham passed his wife off as his sister twice. Not just once, twice. Okay? Jacob, picking up on some of his grandpa's habits maybe, was a master of deception, right? Jacob tricks his older brother out of his inheritance. You remember the story, his older brother is out, he's a hunter, he's out working, kind of a man's man, comes back, he's hungry, Jacob's been there, he's been cooking this porridge up, he smells the porridge, he's like, oh man, I, I'm so hungry right now, and so Jacob sells, he basically says, well, I'll give you some porridge, but you have to give me your blessing, you have to give me your inheritance, and Esau's not the brightest bulb, he gives it to him, and so he fools him, he tricks his brother out of his inheritance, he's as tricky as his old grandpa. Right, and then if that's not enough, he's got he's kind of pulled the wool over Esau's eyes. He's got to fool his father too, so he fools his blind old father into believing his brother Esau because he puts the the hairy uh, lamb stuff on his arms and says, "Yeah, I'm my hairy older brother. Just you know, pay no attention to my voice." And uh, right, and so he tricks him too. This is Jacob, and, th- and then you got Judah, who will be the head of the line of Israel's kings, as we saw in that first that second promise, uh, or that third promise. Sorry. Um, he's going to be the line of Israel's kings to David and, and he begets this kingly line. Where does this kingly line of David come from? This He actually begets this kingly line during what he thinks is a secret visit with a prostitute while he's on a business trip in Genesis 38. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on because there's there's more to that story. But this kingly line of Judah that is going to lead to David actually comes from what he thinks is a visit with a prostitute. And uh, that's where Perez comes from, which leads to David. And then you have King Ahaz and King Manasseh. They led people into idolatry, and they sacrificed their own children into fires. I mean, even King David, it's pointed out here. Matthew doesn't gloss it over. It says, Solomon, born of David by the wife of Uriah. That's not subtle. Um, not his wife. <laughs> Someone else's wife, you know. But not only that, he revealed, David refused to deal with the violation of his daughter by her stepbrother in his own palace, and we talked about that in the summertime, uh, about Tamar, his, and, and his reign was so soaked in bloodshed that God did not permit him to build the temple. This is King David that we're talking about in the line to Jesus, and these are the people that Matthew decides, these are the things I want to highlight. Right? I wanna, I wanna point out that Solomon was born of David by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't have to write it that way. And if, and if you're about to write the history of the king that you want to be Messiah and you want to be honored by the people of Israel, the last thing you would want to do, you would think, is bring up the fact that he comes from an illegitimate, several illegitimate marriages or relationships. And then there's all these kings of the divided kingdom who are, except for a few like Josiah, mostly rotten. right? This is is basically a rogues gallery of men behaving badly when you read through this list. This is as bad as it gets. And and we look around at our generation with human eyes. We look around at our world today, our kingdom, our nation, our world, our families, whatever level you want to look at it, and we think that the world is out of control in human sin. We think that there are horrible people out there doing horrible things, and how can any good come out of this? Well, the prophets looked at their own world in their own time, and they saw the same thing. They saw their kings, they saw their, the, the forefathers of their nation, they saw the heads of their tribes behaving in ways that were abominable. Generation after generation, we see the effect of sin in the world. We see the effect of sin in our nation and in our community and in our own families. And we think it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And the prophets and the people of Israel in their own time, they could sit in their synagogue, they could sit in the tent of meeting, they could sit around the dinner table and look at their generations, and they could say the exact same thing. Look at David. Look at Judah. Look at Abraham. <laughs> Look at Jacob. Look at these guys. What is God doing? But genealogies like Matthew writes here, and our perception of what's going on in our families and in our nation and among our kings and among our leaders, all of these things, and things like Matthew writes here, expose that all sin still reminds us that God is at work. Yes, those kings were evil. Yes, evil was done. Seemingly right under the nose of God. Right among His own chosen people. But those fallen leaders, because of God's absolute sovereignty and control over all things, those fallen, dysfunctional, broken, sinful people stand in the line that will lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are accomplishing God's purposes even in the midst of their dysfunction and sin. So at this point you might think, okay, so there's some scoundrels on this list for sure, but why should we conclude that Matthew deliberately wants us to notice their bad behavior? He's just writing a genealogy. He has to write their list of names down. That's true. He does. So he is establishing the kingship of Jesus, but then let's look at the women he chooses to include and how he references some of them. Because it's not just a list of men behaving badly. There's some questionable women here too. First of all, Again, as you're reading Matthew and you're wondering, what is Matthew writing? Why is he writing this? What does he want me to see when he writes me this letter? We would ask the question, why does Matthew mention women at all in a genealogy in his time? Women are not normally part of these lists. And then if you're going to include women in a genealogy, which is unusual in a Jewish genealogy, then why mention these specific women? All of these other guys had wives too. He doesn't mention all the wives. He just mentions some of the wives. And so why did he pick out these wives? Why point these ones out? And the inclusion of the women that he's selected here puts a big spotlight on the point Matthew's trying to get across. These are women of even greater need of grace than others. So Tamar, who he mentions, not David's Tamar. This is the earlier Tamar from Genesis 39, married to a man that God struck down for being evil... Uh, then she's the brother-in-law of Onan, who doesn't do his duty to take her into his household, so he gets struck down. So Tamar goes to Judah, the father of these two brothers, for his second son. And as you can imagine, Judah is hesitant, because he's just had two of his sons die uh, as a result of this woman Tamar. And so he's hesitant to get involved. Maybe it's not such a good idea. But he doesn't do his family duty to this Tamar, who needs a household now, who is basically estranged and alone and marginalized in the world. And so Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and sits by the gate while Judah's on this uh, trip, uh, business trip, to look after his herds, and she gets impregnated by her father-in-law. Uh, you could just at your Christmas dinner, bring up this story, you know. You think you got weird stuff going on in your family. Yeah, this will trump it, right? So then after getting pregnated by her father-in-law, she bears twin sons, and one of them, Perez, was already mentioned in our genealogy, is in the line of Jesus. So again, Matthew, why are you highlighting Tamar? Why, why would you even bring this story to mind as you are trying to establish the honor and the authority and the power and the kingliness that is due to this Messiah. Then you have Rahab, who is an actual prostitute in Jericho, She hid the spies when they're scoping out Jericho, and so she was spared and was brought into the covenant community and eventually had children that led to Jesus as well. Then you have Ruth, who's a wonderful godly woman by every account that we have in Scripture, but she was a Moabite. She was the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, and they were excluded by God. Israel was supposed to have nothing to do with Moab. They were not to relate to the Moabite people at all. And yet we see here that Ruth, who followed Naomi back to Israel and desired to follow her God, was married to Boaz and became the great-grandmother of King David. A Moabite woman becomes the great-grandmother of King David. But why would you mention that in this list? And then you have Bathsheba, and I'm not going to put much blame on Bathsheba. I'm not sure why she was taking a bath on her roof, but I doubt it was to tempt David. David is definitely the sinner in this story, okay? But he's using his kingly power to take another man's wife and have that man killed off at the front lines of battle so that he could have access to Bathsheba. And she is mentioned here not by name, but literally by calling her the wife of Uriah to make it extremely clear what aspect of the story Matthew is highlighting. So you go through this list of names, and it's a part of the Bible that you probably just normally skip over, right? is you just get to the good stuff. Let's get to Mary and Joseph and the birth and all of that stuff. That's what I want to get to. And and we just skip over this, but there's a reason for this because there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in what has been going on for over 3,000 years in Old Testament Scripture and what is taking place today. And Matthew wants to show us that continuity, but he also wants to show us not just that Jesus is the King that is coming, but that Jesus is a King that comes from a line of people who need to be saturated with grace. He is a king of grace. One thing we have to realize about the Bible is that it is not an account of good people who we are supposed to emulate. If you think the Bible is a list of saints who we should follow, that will lead you into serious trouble, as we've already looked at just in this list. There are actually very few examples of people in the Old Testament and even in the New that you could model your life after and please God. It is not a list of saints who we should emulate and therefore be blessed by God. The Bible is a book of broken and sinful people who are carried by the grace of God. The Bible is not a book that tells us a list of things that we need to do so that God will save us. It is a book that tells us what God has already done in order to save us. You have to get that right. If you think the Bible is a whole bunch of rules we have to follow so that God will save us, we will get it wrong. This Jesus comes as a king not of law, but a a king of grace. And the reality is, and I want to talk about this a little bit more in the new year, but I'll just mention it here. God has always been a God of grace. When we talk about the law versus grace, I just want you to remember one thing. God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt before He gave them the law. The law came after the rescue. He took His people from Egypt And then he said to them, this is how you have a relationship with me. And he gave the law to his people. He didn't give the law to the rest of the world to follow. He gave it to his people to follow so they could have a relationship with him. God has always been a God of grace. The rescue comes before the relationship and the law. And this is what Matthew is showing us. That the kingly line of Jesus is a line of normal Regular, broken, sinful people. And if a king is going to come, he's not going to come out of the righteousness of his people. He's going to come in spite of the sinfulness of his people. Now the world calls these families dysfunctional. The Bible calls them sinful. But that's good news for us. Because this tells us where our king has come from and what he's come for. Any Jew in the first century reading this would think, what kind of a royal lineage list is this? What are you writing? Why would you write it this way? Why would you highlight these people in these events? There are much better ways to write a genealogy for the Messiah than this. Are you literally trying to embarrass him? That's not Matthew's point. He's making apparent that Jesus is a king who is going to rule by grace. Matthew wants to point out at the start of his Gospel what he's going to also point out at the end. Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jewish nation. He's also the Savior of all people. Remember, he's going to end this whole Gospel with 2819, go and make disciples of all nations. And so Matthew wants to show that yes, these are a whole bunch of broken, sinful people, and they are also people from all kinds of different nations. Right? There's Moabites in here. There's Gentiles in here. There's, there's people from other clans and cultures in here. He's the savior of Gentiles and foreigners. He's the savior of those who've been put out and those who have been cut off from God's blessing. He's the savior of people who are liars and who are sinners. He's the savior of prostitutes and murderers. He's the, the savior of Canaanites and Moabites. You name it. Jesus will shed his blood to save every kind of people because they're His people. They're his family. We're his people. We are his family. As broken and dysfunctional as in need of grace that we are, we are exactly the kind of people that the Messiah has come from and come for. He is the anticipated king, but he's not a king who's going to rule by law. He's a king who rules by grace. He's a friend of sinners. He's acquainted with grief, and he's a sympathetic high priest. So God works to keep his promises. The Old Testament, the book of promises made. The New Testament, the book of promises kept. He's promising a land of rest. He's promising redemption from slavery. He's promising forgiveness from sin, a new heart, peace and salvation. A perfect everlasting king who won't mess up like all the other kings at the end of his reign and die and leave his people behind. This is a new king, an eternal king who is a perfect king. And at times in the history of the Old Testament, it seems like all of these promises of of redemption, of forgiveness, and of a new heart, of flesh, and all of these things, it seems at times in the Old Testament that these promises would never come to pass, that Messiah was never going to arrive. The kingdom was torn in two, and then it ceased to exist, and the kingdom died. But God purposed to keep the promise of a king and keep all his promises. 2 Corinthians one twenty, the Apostle Paul, looking back with all of his knowledge of the Old Testament and then the revelation of the mystery of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, he says it this way. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So we don't have to wonder when the Messiah will come, when the Davidic line will come waiting for the perfect prophet who will speak God's Word perfectly. We don't have to wait for that high priest that's going to intercede for us. He has already come in the most unexpected way. He has come from this ragtag lineage of Israel, which is so full of sin and brokenness. And He has come to us as a human child, born so humbly into a poor family in a backwater town in Israel, And all those generations of longing, all those centuries of silence, and and then you turn to the first pages of the New Testament and it says, this is the genealogy of the Messiah, of the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's come, the anointed one, the Messiah. The royal, long-awaited king is here to take the throne. Jesus is God's chosen means of salvation for all people of the world Not just for the world, but he's God's chosen means of salvation for you. And we see this in how Matthew introduces us to him in this genealogy. Nothing of what Matthew writes is wasted. He's pointing us to the king, but he's pointing us to a king who is a king of grace. There's four basic takeaways that I want you to get from this list of names. The first one is this. God's dealings are with actual people, not with ideal people. This is the feature item in Matthew's genealogy. None of the people that we've looked at have been quality citizens. And we often get this wrong in our head. We have this idea that God is looking for good people who qualify to get into heaven or who are willing to work hard enough to qualify to get into heaven. Isn't that normally how a lot of people think about Christianity? God is looking for good people who qualify to get into heaven. Or they at least will work hard enough to qualify to get into heaven. Rather than the reality that God is calling bad people to come. We're all bad people. And He will qualify us to enter into heaven. Christians are just people who have trusted God to qualify them rather than pretending we can qualify ourselves. We can't qualify ourselves. We need God to qualify us. No one is good. We all need a Savior. And so this genealogy shows us that God's dealings are with actual people, not with ideal people. God is not looking for people who are already qualified to get into heaven. None of us are. God is saying, this is what I will do to qualify you to get into heaven with me and spend eternity with me. Secondly, God uses all the messy stuff of dysfunction to accomplish his purpose. You may look at your family or your own life And you may wonder how God can bless any of it. What's that sign that some people put in their kitchen? God bless this mess or something like that? Right? But that's all of our families, right? And we can look around at different seasons in our life and different parts of time in our family and we can wonder how God is going to use the dysfunction and the sin and the brokenness and the turmoil to accomplish any purpose. But then you can just turn to Matthew one. 2-17, and just look at how God used the dysfunction of Israel's premier citizens. This is the cream of the crop of Israel. This is the royal line. These are the tribes of Judah. God took this cream of the crop of Israel, which was so dysfunctional, and used it to bring about His Messiah. God is a Redeemer. He's given us a King that operates by grace, not by law. He is redeeming the worst of us. Whatever mess you think you are in, whatever brokenness you think your family is in, God is bigger, God is wiser, God is more powerful than your little family dysfunction, whatever it is. God can overcome all of that to redeem your family and redeem your life in ways that you cannot imagine. Now, the Messiah is not going to come from your family, okay? That's already happened. But don't think that amazing, miraculous, redeeming, world-changing, community-changing, family-changing, life-changing things can't come from your family just because it's sinful or dysfunctional. All our families are sinful and dysfunctional. But God is bigger and wiser and more powerful Jesus redeems the broken and the weak and the unrighteous. The family line of Jesus contained moral outcasts who basically had no right being in the family line of the Son of God. And yet there they are for us to read about. God, through Jesus, is redeeming, He's restoring, He's setting right the mess that we have made of our family lines. Thirdly, God is not operating on our timetable. The family line promised to Eve wasn't identified for roughly 1,500 years and then abraham's promise took two thousand years to come to fruition that's part of what matthew is pointing out here with these three eras and the fourteen generations in each era he's saying very clearly god is at work maybe not on the timetable that you were hoping for israel maybe you were hoping david would be the messiah maybe you were hoping somebody even earlier than that would be the messiah but god is working on his timetable between malachi and matthew there's four hundred years of darkness and silence and then jesus came and died for sinners who basically had no use for Him. You may look back in your life and wonder why God has been working so slowly, why there needed to be so many years of trial, why there had to be so many years of pain, why there had to be so many decades of brokenness, or why you see that there might still be years to go before you see the end of it. But God is not wasting any time, He's not wasting any of the suffering, He's not wasting any of the dysfunction. God is not even wasting your sin. He's redeeming everything. When I say God redeems everything, I mean God redeems everything. There is nothing He does not redeem and accomplish His purposes through. God's purposes are being accomplished every second of every year that passes. When the time is complete, His kingdom, our kingdom, will be made perfect and eternal. But until that time, God's not working on our timetable. He's doing what He is doing to accomplish a perfection of His kingdom that we cannot imagine. And He's working on that same timetable in your life and in your family. It may seem like a long time, but it's not 400 years, it's not 1,500 years, it's not 2,000 years. But God is working on His timetable to redeem, even in your life and your family. Fourthly, finally, Jesus is for all tribes and all nations and all people. The family line of Jesus was ethnically diverse. They came from mixed blood of many nations, and Jesus shed his blood for them and for us. We have to remember God's promise and prophecy to Abraham that we started with in Genesis twelve three: All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God is not the tribal God of Israel only, but he is the savior of the whole world. All nations, all people are made in the image of God, and all people have equal access to Christ and the community of his believers. When you understand the significance of these names in this genealogy, it makes sense why Matthew would start this way. God never let go of fulfilling his promises. He overruled even the sin of these people. There is a reminder here that there is a larger story than ours being written in history, and God is the author of it. Christmas is a wonderful time to be with family. It's a wonderful time to enjoy traditions and give gifts. But Christmas also brings into stark contrast the things we are missing. Christmas brings into stark contrast the people who are not at the dinner table with us. It brings into contrast the reality that our families are broken or that we've lost someone, that we are missing more than ever, that our relationships have some bitterness and some brokenness in them. But because it's Christ's mass, God has come to rescue us through His Son, Jesus. We can enjoy Christmas in spite of the sin and the dysfunction that may be around the dinner table on Christmas Day. We can enjoy Christmas in spite of a sin-torn world because it's God who has kept His promises in Jesus. The way to accept this promise, the way to accept this gift is to trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to rescue those who would be rescued. Right? Jesus came to die for those who would trust in him. And this is a step that we have to take. It's that trusting in this reality. Trusting in the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was as gracious as Jesus in the New Testament. That God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of time, before the foundation of the world, before anyone was ever born, they had a plan that they were going to execute and that plan came to its fruition in Christ Jesus to save the world. It's a gift that they have offered to those who will trust that truth and that reality about Jesus. Ephesians 2 tells us what a gift it is. It says in Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God will qualify you. You don't work really hard to qualify. It's a gift in Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation of in any other. Than Jesus, for there is none other, no other name under heaven given among men where might be must be saved. God says, this is a gift I'm giving to you. I'm giving it to you in my son. This is the way you receive this gift and you receive it when we trust. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So this long-anticipated king has come. He's a king of grace, not a king of law. He is a king that comes from every nation, and he is here to bless every nation. The only way to get into his kingdom and to receive him is to trust him. The only way to be saved is to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is the Messiah, and that God's promises hold true. That is how you are saved. This is the best news you will ever hear. This is the good news of Christmas. This is what we get to share amongst the community, amongst our families, with the world. The Christ has come. God has fulfilled his promises. And he's a king that rules by grace. Let's pray. Father God, as we kind of ease into the advent season as we kind of ease into these messages on jesus this infant jesus who's now going to come to mary and joseph father we just want to remember the reality of where this all comes from jesus does not just appear on the scene as a surprise your old testament promises and your old testament prophecies have been heralding the day that we are going to be looking at in the next few weeks And Father, we are thankful that you have always been a God of grace, that the law came after the rescue, that Christ came to qualify not to find those who are qualified, that he came to rule as a king by grace and not by law. And Father, we thank you that we have this genealogy, this lineage of the very Son of God, your Son, that is filled with people as broken and dysfunctional and more so than we are as just further evidence that you reject none who would turn to you. Because those people were Jesus' family. We're Jesus' family. And He will by no means turn away any that the Father brings to Him. Father, we pray that this would resound in our hearts this Christmas with those that we love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.